Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. He entered, oh, this is the word of the Lord. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down and hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's a... Privilege to uh, come together and worship together. Would you join me as we continue to worship, as we pray? Gracious and merciful God, I pray that you would silence the voices within us so that as your word is preached, we may hear your words and your voice. And in hearing, we may trust and obey, bearing fruit 30 times, 60 times, 100 times for your glory. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I have a weird confession to make. Um, I am a recovering security seeker. And by that, uh, it means that a big portion of my life I struggle to spend money. Spending money made me feel uneasy at times. Perhaps it had something to do with growing up in a family uh, with a pastor where finances were always tight. Um, I felt poor. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not using the word poor in a global sense. We weren't literally starving to death. Uh, But I felt poor. Never lacked clothes on my back or food on the table because the Heavenly Father and my earthly parents always provided what we needed, but we didn't get to eat the stuff that we often wanted to, and we couldn't go out to eat in places. Um, Wasn't able to wear the branded name clothes that I saw others wearing, and we didn't get to participate in activities that I saw other people do. And it's kind of weird, even as an adult, um, even when I planned and saved up for a particular purchase, um, spending money for the thing that I planned to use didn't feel good. It's something that a healthy person should be able to celebrate and feel good about, but I wasn't one of them for the longest time. And even though I had saved up emergency fund for a rainy day, when emergency 
came and unexpected happenings came around my corner, instead of feeling at ease knowing that there is this margin, um, I felt upset. It's because of the place that I trusted. Where was the place I trusted the most? Was it really in God or was it perhaps in the money that I was saving? Security seekers or savers like me may appear to be healthy financially just because practically we might be managing okay or well. But underneath the surface of that financial management, there is this deep fear. And there is also this poverty mindset. And often we allow the past to dictate and control how we live today instead of really living the free life that the Lord has given us through Jesus Christ. As a follower of Christ and a recovering security seeker or saver, um, I find myself seeking security and money at times more than God. I am still learning. I'm still failing and fumbling to both understand and live out this generous life that God calls us to live because of what he has done on the cross. I want to be more generous to my family and friends near me, around me, and especially for the kingdom purposes. And I'm on this journey still growing. I don't want to think that because I give my tithe, I get to do whatever I want with the 90%, thinking I've done my part. But I want to learn what it means to live a generous life. And I know I have a long way to go. But I look to God in wanting to grow in this way. Let me ask us, how is your relationship with money? A wise steward by the name of Ron Blue once said, financial decisions you make are the most objective measurement of spirituality. If you believe God owns it all, when you spend his money, in effect, you are making a spiritual decision. And he continues by saying that our checking account and tax return can tell what our values, priorities, and goals truly are. So let me ask us again, what kind of questions are we, are you asking God as you are managing his treasures and finances? The first sermon I preached here at CGS a little over a year ago, I preached on the same passage. Some of you guys were there. You may be wondering, oh, he's preaching again the same passage. Zacchaeus really resonates with me on many levels. Um, that sermon, when I started sharing my testimony about getting beaten up, like if you, wanna, if you weren't there, you can go to our, I guess, sermon podcast and listen to that. But today, I want to build on what I preached last week on understanding the generous God that we have. Because I think Zacchaeus really has a lot to teach us about the generous life that, call, that God calls us to live out because we have a generous God. A lot like the parable that I preached last week, and if you missed last week, you can also go to the podcast and listen to that too. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. He worked for the Roman government, although he was a Jew. And he was, as the scripture just told us, he was very rich. 
He chose wealth over everything else. He gave his personal life. He gave his social life. He gave up his religious life in his pursuit of wealth. That's what he wanted, and that's what he committed to do. And as a chief tax collector, as he was committed to gaining wealth, he was doing really well. Yet perhaps there was something missing. All of us long for success. All of us long for significance. And all of us long for security. Yet perhaps all of this thing that Zacchaeus thought that he could achieve through the wealth that he was amassing as a chief tax collector, he had everything he could probably wish. Yet it just wasn't enough. And he sought Jesus out. And in his pursuit of Jesus, he thought he was doing all the hard work of pursuing, running, climbing a tree, hoping to see a glance, a glimpse of his face. Yet it was Jesus who, in passing that very spot, stops, looks up, and seeing Zacchaeus' face, calls him by name and invites himself to his home, elevating his status to where Christ was. All this time, Zacchaeus thought that he was playing it in this pursuit. Yet he began to realize that it was the Lord Jesus who was searching him and finally found him. That Christ wasn't accidentally passing through that spot in Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. Neither was this an accident that over 2,000 years ago, Christ entered human history. Zacchaeus experienced this radical grace from this generous God that he heard about hanging out with sinners like him and prostitutes, knowing that there's something about this man that was more than a man. Last year, I ended there, kind of. This radical pursuit of Christ, of Zacchaeus, and the radical pursuit of God for us. Yet there's something more if you look at the end of this story, how Zacchaeus' life in those transformative events changed the way he related with money. Because you see, if Jesus is our Savior, then he demands to be our Lord and Master. And if he is our Master, he demands lordship over all areas of our lives. It's not just my spiritual life that he demands lordship. It encompasses all of us, our relationships, our time, our talent, our treasures. The financial path that a typical financial advisor or coaches would advise people in this pursuit of comfort and security looks like this. Get out of debt. Build up a good emergency fund. Invest in a home. Invest in your retirement savings for a comfortable life and secure retirement. And if you are a Christian or you're working with, let's say, a kingdom advisor who is Christian, they'll say, give a tithe. And we often think, okay, then I've done my part. 
These are prudent things. Don't get me wrong. You look at the book of Proverbs, these, the wisdom sayings, these are all in Scripture. Get out of debt. Save short-term and long-term. These are biblical principles. However, I've been wondering if this financial path of comfort and security serves to bring us closer to God or away from God. If you're in debt, work hard to get out of it. If you're in the process of saving up emergency fund, continue because it's going to rain and you're going to need an umbrella when that happens. And if you're in the process of saving for your future, do so. Scripture dictates that. That would be a prudent thing to do. However, if you're on that path, we have to be cognizant of this also. That if we're not intentional, this very wise path to financial security and comfort will lead us away from God instead of close to Him. Scripture warns us about money a lot. And Jesus talks about wealth and how, you know, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And Jesus tells us that we can't serve both God and money, God and mammon. And the Pharisees who were around them, who were lovers of money, as Scripture said, heard all these things and just ridiculed Jesus for it. In the Bible, you have people who are at the high end of the spectrum of financial stability, wealthy, but they were away from God. You have people like the rich young ruler. You have disciples like Judas Iscariot. You have the rich fool, the rich man. Interesting, these people are nameless, right? And you have the church of Laodicea, and you have people in Acts like Ananias and Sapphira. At the other end of the spectrum, you have people who were really poor, but still walking towards God. You have people like Apostle Paul, who lost it all, and the famous scripture, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, as he's writing in jail with nothing. As well as people like the poor widow and the church of Macedonia, who in their poverty was still giving to the church in Jerusalem. Yet, they're also those who were financially really stable, yet also positioned toward God and walking towards him. People like Cornelius, people like Lydia, and yes, like today, people like Zacchaeus. If you are a saver like me, you can easily make saving and accumulation in the name of financial prudence take over your heart. And it is a lordship issue. And God knocks and knocks. I had a privilege of sitting with seasoned stewardship uh, teachers, cohorts, and there's a guy, a younger guy by the name of John Cortinez who wrote a book, God and Money. I don't know if you guys read that. And in this meeting, he shared a short story, his rendition of the parable of the rich fool, and this is what he shared. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my boss to pay the full year-end performance bonus he promised me. 
And he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the stock options belonging to a manager vested after a long run-up in share price. And he thought to himself, hmm, what shall I do? For I already have enough saved to send my kids to college. My house is paid off. I'm already maxed out my 401k every year. And he said, I will do this. I will open an investment account and create a passive income portfolio. And I'll exercise my options and put the money there. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have big enough portfolio to be financially independent, retire early, plan some vacation, play golf. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the portfolio you built, what use will it be? So is the one who endlessly builds his net worth and is not rich toward God. If you're not a saver, then maybe you are a spender. At the other end of the spectrum, you may save, you may give tithes, but your orientation is towards spending. But instead of thinking our identity as spenders or savers, what if God wants us to think, us, think of us as stewards and servants? Instead of thinking, God, how much should I give? Because you know what? I say this all the time. There are no dumb questions, but actually there are good questions. And when you don't ask the right questions, you can't get to the right answer. So instead of asking, God, how much should I give? What if we dare to ask God, how much should I keep and spend for me and my family? It reprioritizes the way we think about stewardship. The case in today's passage is a changed man. He worshipped money. The grip of mammon that it once held has been loosened. And now he, in these moments, is able to release and give. Scripture tells us, you know, actually, he decided to give four times the amount if he defrauded someone, and he is willing to give half of his possessions to the poor. Back in Jesus' time, both in the scriptures and the rabbis would say, if you basically took things illegitimately, you're supposed to give 20% in addition to what was valued. So you're supposed to give 120%. And here is Zacchaeus, a man who has been gripped by this desire for wealth, to build it, amass it. He's saying, you know what, God and Jesus, I'm going to give them four times, 400 times what I took. And scripture reminds us that he's also ready and willing. He's going to give half of his possessions to the poor. Now, actually, that's Actually, in contrast to what was said before, because before Jesus invited a rich young ruler and he asked him, hey, give all you have and follow me. But you know what? It still reflects this radical generosity that has changed and grown in Zacchaeus' heart. Experience of a generous God ought to and naturally does move us to a generous life. 
what is impossible with man is possible with God. Salvation is not just in the spiritual arena. Lordship is not just about my relationship with God. It is holistic. It encompasses your personal, domestic, social, economic dimensions. That it is all God's. And we are to steward it all for his glory. Deep down, we all long for these three things and three desires motivate us. We want to be successful. We want to be significant. And we long to be secure. Yet no amount of wealth will ever make us feel that way. You might actually be successful, be secure, or be significant, but you will never get to that point where you will feel all of that. I've seen people who have millions, yet they still don't feel the way that they long to. I think I need a little more. And no matter what age you are, whether you are 18 or 68, people ask the same questions. It's like, will I have enough? This is, you know, they're talking about eventually down the road. And will it continue to be enough? And they'll wonder, it's like, how much is enough? Do you know how much is enough? A lot of times we haven't sat down and looked at our finances and prayed to the Lord, God, I think this is what I need. Many people don't even know the size of our cups, what it looks like. Some of us, it's like a thimble. Some of us, it's like a bathtub. Some of us, nothing flows out. Some of us, everything out overflows. And as Christ follower, the most important question that the Lord invites us to ask it's the ownership question. Whose is it? There's nothing more important than that question. Everything hinges on that. Whose is it? Is it mine or is it the Lord's? Because if you don't answer that, if you don't ask that question, everything else is just going to be practical personal finance. And you might be successful, but God is not interested in you and me just become financially secure because we could be walking away from the Lord in our journey of financial security. And then the second question after asking whose is it and answering that is a question of how much is enough? The size of your cup at this season of your life, single, married, with kids, whatever it is, asking the Lord, what is that size? What do we need? And as you have kids, and if you have kids, as you think about what you're going to do with what the Lord has given you and trusted you, have you chosen the next steward, and are they prepared to receive it? Because you know what? I was talking to a group of about 20 people who have done very well with their finances, and I asked them, like, hey, how are you doing in preparing your kids? That's a different story. And if that's not done well, it's not going to be a blessing to their kids. In fact, it's going to be a curse.
Bible talks about seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Yet some of us, we are seeking pleasure and comfort as our first. And if that's the case, we will be spending aggressively, saving moderately or modestly, and we'll be giving modestly. Some of us, because you're seeking security and stability, you'll be spending modestly, you'll be giving modestly, but you'll be saving aggressively. But true kingdom-minded servants who understand it all belongs to God, who are seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, yes, you will be saving, yes, you will be spending, but you'll be spending and saving modestly, and you'll be giving aggressively. Because if you and I on that financial path of seeking pleasure and comfort or security and stability, we'll be walking away from God. And the things that we will experience here will be things like pride that eventually will lead to coveting, that eventually will lead to anxiety and ultimately lead to indifference. But if you and I are seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, and yes, save modestly, spend modestly, and give aggressively, we will experience, as a starting point, gratitude, knowing we have a generous God. And from that understanding of generosity of God, moving from gratitude, we'll move to contentment. And from contentment, we'll learn to trust And from that place of trust, we will be able to move to love and true generosity. What if as God's stewards, we think more about not just, God, how much should I give? But asking, dare to ask, God, how much should we keep? Because we need to know the size of the cup to provide for our family. But as the cup overflows, we need to then be ready to discern what was given for us and what was given to us to be a blessing for his kingdom and kingdom purposes. Radiation is a powerful thing. And when it is harnessed correctly, it can be used to heal. Yet if it's not done properly, even in small dosage, it could be lethal. Wealth is like that too. And you know what? People who are generous, they can be generous spontaneously. But I'm talking about generous people who are generous systematically. They decide on the size of the cup. And I'm always challenged when I, think, I, when I see people. The people that I know reversed they give 90 and spend their 10%. There are people that I know spend 50 and give 50. And people who want to incrementally, they know they don't have a huge margin, so each year they ask the Lord, God, what do we need for our family? But you know what, Lord, I want to give, I want to increase like 1% each year to kingdom-sized vision. And it challenges me. Tithe, people ask me, it's like, Pastor Paul, is tithing, isn't tithing an Old Testament principle? And I tell them, yes. We start with 10. We, now we can give more. 
the heart of what it means is everything belongs to God anyway. People who give generously in a systematic way, they ask these kind of questions. Why should I be generous? They ask, how do I do generosity? They ask, where should I give generously? And they go ahead and set plans to give generously. Past couple months, I've been really challenged by this as God's been convicting me in the way I've been relating with money. And if you want recommendations on different books, please, there are plenty I can recommend. Um, but uh, there's a real short book that I came across written by John Reinhardt by the title of Gospel Patrons. You could, like, read it in an hour. And he introduced me to a guy by the name of Humphrey Monmouth. Humphrey Monmouth. Has anyone heard of a guy by the name of Humphrey Monmouth? I'd never heard of him either until I read this book. You see, Humphrey Monmouth, he's like, who is this guy? He lived in the 16th century. He was a wealthy merchant who made his money on the cloth business. He played a significant part in the English Reformation. We all know of Martin Luther and John Calvin, but very few, not any one of us know about Humphrey Monmouth. You see, his relationship with William Tyndale, the father of the English Bible, was the key. William Tyndale pioneered the translation of the scriptures into English from the original Greek and Hebrew, and he was martyred for this in 1536. Because you see, the Catholic Church at the time deemed, basically, it was illegal to have the vernacular language available for commoners to read the Bible. Only in Latin. Only the priests could read it. They thought it was dangerous. But Tyndale didn't think so. He, he knew what was happening in Germany with people like Martin Luther, who was translating the Bible into German, and he knew that this needed to be done. You see, Tyndale needed more than just textbooks and inspiration to do the translation work. He needed food. He needed clothing. He needed a place to stay. He needed an income to do this serious task. So you know what? Humphrey Monmouth provided the room, the board, and the financial support to this young Tyndale to do the translation work of the New Testament. Eventually, Tyndale had to fl flee to Europe because the pressure was uh, going up and up. But Humphrey Monmouth basically served as a patron supporting Tyndale to do this amazing work. In England, Monmouth introduced Tyndale to the secret society of London merchants called the Christian Brethren, and it was this society that eventually financed and imported the Christian literature um, to England. Tyndale's personal finance support, as well as the cost of printing the Bible, all came from this group. And eventually, when the Bibles and different literature was smuggled, it was Humphrey's um, business, the cloth that was wrapping these Bibles and books into the country of England. Kingdom of God requires preachers to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, missionaries to be sent out, yet it also requires businessmen and businesswomen and others to faithfully serve God 
in their work like Monmouth did. Monmouth's contribution to God's kingdom work is no less spiritual than the work of William Tyndale. How is our generous God inspiring you to live out a generous life? Did you know that Jesus and his disciples also had gospel patrons? How do you think they wander around in this preaching tour, ministry tour for three years? You see, there were these three women, and you can see it in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. There's Mary, Joanna, and Susanna. They provided for the disciples and Jesus from their means. Jesus Christ was able to do his ministry because there are people who are supporting him and the disciples. There are people like Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple. They were uh, businessmen and women. They hosted a church in their house. They came alongside of people like Apollos. They partnered with Paul and supported him and risked their lives for him. The people, and do you know how we get to know people like Priscilla and Aquila some 2,000 years later like we are doing now? It's because they're people like Theophilus, who served as patron to Luke, Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts because he supported Dr. Luke to do the research, and to write. There are these gospel patrons who supported and financed so that the work of the Lord would be done. And there are women like, women like Phoebe who opened up her home, hosted missionaries, and had church in her home, assisting Paul and others with financial needs. We have an amazing God. We have a generous God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he invites those that he has redeemed to be saved. Saved is not just spiritual salvation. It's about making you whole. Holistically, socially, financially, relationally, and he demands lordship because he's the only one who could demand such thing and invites us to live out that generous life because he didn't hold back what was most valuable but gave. How is the Lord convicting you this morning? What does it look like for us as a church collectively and for us individually or as family to live out this generous life that the Lord invites us to join for his kingdom. My prayer and hope is that we start by asking some of the questions and coming to the Lord honestly, humbly, starting where you are, and daring to just let him lead where he leads you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we 
are amazed by your radical generosity that you have shown us through your son, Jesus Christ. And your invitation, your invitation to live out the generous life for your kingdom. You're not against us storing up treasures. You just want us to store up treasures in the right place where nothing, nothing like rust or thief or moth can take away. So Lord, we come to you and we ask of you to do your work. Be gentle with us, but be firm with us. Set us free from ourselves so that, Lord, we may partake in the glorious plan that you have for your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. The Lord invites us to the table, asking us to remember what he has done. And I want us to, as we get ready, um, would you join with me as we pray the Lord's Prayer, as we recite together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and glory forever. Amen. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, during the Passover meal, after washing his disciples' feet, knowing that this was the very thing he came to accomplish, our Lord took bread. And offered to the Lord, blessing it, and breaking, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup. And in Jewish Passover meal, there are four cups of wine. This is probably the third cup, representing the cup of redemption, buying back. And he poured, saying, this is a blood of a new covenant shed for you. signifying the price he paid to redeem us back, to set us free, to restore us back to the Father. If you have made a public confession, maybe you were baptized as an infant, but you confirmed your faith as an adult, or you are baptized as an adult, we invite you to come and partake of the bread and the wine that the Lord invites us to partake. And if you're not able or not ready to do that, 
that's okay. I want to invite you to just posture yourself at the foot of the cross and just lay down at the feet of the cross. Everything, the things that you're proud of and the things that you're ashamed of because neither one of those things will be able to bring you to Christ. Only the cross can. Our ushers will help, but before, I want to just invite us to time of reflection because the scripture challenges us about examining our hearts so that we are not condemned in coming to the table in an unworthy manner. So I invite you to just take the next minute prayerfully examining your hearts as you examine the Lordship As you think about how the word has challenged you today, let's come before the Lord, ready to feast on the only one who can give us life.